Our speaker this morning, I asked him to come and speak, uh, Dr. Thomas White, because of his understanding uh, of the issues related to religious liberty. Um, Dr. Thomas White is the 10th president of Cedarville University. Prior to that, he served for nine years at Southwestern Seminary as an associate professor of systematic theology and as a part of their cabinet as a vice president. Um, Cedarville University has had a significant impact on the history of this church. I was doing some figuring last evening, and seven of our present or former pastors are all graduates of Cedarville uh, University. So this school has had a significant impact on the lives of almost half of our present pastors. In the last number of years, I've been privileged to have permission by the elders to serve on the trustees at Cedarville, and that's where Dr. White and I have met. We've become friends, and in the course of those conversations about a university come to understand, through Dr. White's help, the significance of the issue of religious liberty. And so that's why I've asked him to come and speak this evening. And this morning is going to come and uh, deliver a wonderful message on Daniel chapter 3. Dr. White is married to his wife, Joy, and they have two wonderful children, Samuel and Rachel. And we're very privileged to have Dr. White here today. Would you give him a warm College Park welcome as he comes? Well, you are a blessed church. It has been an honor to get to know your pastor over the past three years, and just a godly man who loves the Lord, great preacher. I love this church, too, the things I have learned about it, the emphasis on text-driven preaching. And so it's an honor for me to be here. And so I do bring you greetings from Cedarville. Uh, Just a blessing to be able to get to know your pastor and many of the members of the church as well. Daniel chapter 3 is where we are this morning. Daniel chapter 3. Let's start in this way. Has there ever been a moment in life where you have wondered, God, are you in control? God, do you really know what's happening in my life at this moment? God, are you in control? I think at some point in time, most of us, if we have lived long enough, have been there. We have looked out at the circumstances of our culture, perhaps, and seen tragedies that have occurred at nightclubs even last night. We have looked out to see things in our culture that we just don't understand. Outrage in our society over a gorilla that has been killed, but no outrage over babies that are aborted and parts that are sold. We have looked at a society that has chosen sexual freedom over religious freedom to some extent and made our core identity sexual beings rather than beings created in the image of God as male and female to worship and glorify Him. And we look out and wonder, what is going on? God, are you in control? We see a society headed in an opposite direction from the biblical worldview that we look at, and perhaps we wonder, God... Are you in control? Then it becomes personal for us, too, as we go to work and face difficult decisions, real decisions of where do we stand and decisions that we make. And those decisions cost us jobs, and they cost us promotions. And these are real life-impacting decisions. And we look out at God and think, God, do you know what's happening in my life right now? We go to the doctor and we receive a diagnosis and that diagnosis is not positive and we look out and think, God, do you know? Are you there? Are you in control? Do you understand my life and what's happening? We lose a loved one in an unexplainable situation and we look out and don't understand and we have questions and often in our hearts, even though we believe, even though we have faith, we still ask that question, God, are you in control? There is still that moment of where we 
even though we believe, have to pray, God, help my unbelief. Today in our text, I think we're there. You see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you see young Hebrew men who were taken captive against their will at age 15, taken off into a far country away from mom and dad. They arrive in this country. They've been put into an educational system and reprogrammed basically for three years. Their names have been changed to take the name of the one true God out of their name, to put the names of the Babylonian gods in their names. They have been faithful. They have stood firm. They even went vegetarian in order not to eat the king's food and not defile themselves. And I have to admit, I would have a problem with this. This would be hard for me. I mean, beef is how the West was won, right? That's what's for dinner. I mean, I I, I personally don't like killing harmless plant life. I mean, I I don't want to mess up a good... I'm not going to mess up a good cheeseburger with lettuce and pickles and tomatoes and stuff. It's just not the way it works in my life, right? Some of you, I suspect, are with me. And, and they were faithful, and maybe they thought, okay, this is it. Now we get a nice, easy life. And then you come to Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel perhaps had had some bad Mexican the day before and had a dream. And in that dream, he decided that he needed to know the dream and the interpretation, and nobody could provide that. But God, through Daniel, provided the dream and the interpretation, and we learn that he is not only the the predictor of dreams, but he knows the future, and and here that happens and saves their lives, and they think, okay, maybe now it's over, we can rest, and then we come to Daniel chapter 3. We don't know how much time has passed between Daniel chapter 2 or Daniel chapter 3, but we see here in Daniel chapter 3, perhaps operating off of the dream so that he was the golden head. Perhaps now a golden statue has been created based off of that, and everybody's being called to bow down to a golden statue. And here they find themselves in the trials of life once again, a long way away from home, in a society that wants them to compromise at every turn. And perhaps somewhere along this story, they wonder, God, are you in control? Here we see in the setting that he created a statue that was 60 cubits in its breadth with six cubits. That's 90 feet high, nine feet wide. So to get the image in your mind, think of a picture, a smaller scale Washington Monument. The Washington Monument is 550 feet tall, 55 feet wide. You have the same scale of the dimensions, it's just smaller. You wonder, well, why only 90 feet? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But we remember back in Genesis how they built a tower called Babel, and that didn't work out too well for them. So perhaps they decided 90 feet was high enough. We're not going to go any higher at the current moment. He brings everybody together. It's the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers. It's all the musicians. They come together, and he says, you will bow down and worship. This chapter contains the word worship 11 times. That should be key for us. The repetition of the word worship should be important in our minds as we look at the text to say, it's not a matter of if we will worship, it is a matter of what we will worship. To state it a different way, it's not the issue of worship, it's the object of worship. All of us will worship. We will worship something in this life. We are created to worship. The question is, what is it we're going to worship? Is it going to be ourselves, our reputation, a sexual freedom, materialism, etc., 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 or the one true God? He brings them all together. He tells them to bow down. And then we move to verse 8. And in verse 8 through verse 12, we see the first breakdown of this passage in the charges that come against them. These charges that are brought against them are malicious charges. You see that in verse 8 where it says he maliciously accused the Jews. These are not innocent, harmless charges 
of truth-telling. These are malicious charges. And even in that charge, you can hear it in the word where he says in verse 12, there are certain Jews. Why the word certain there in that text? This is this is a pejorative setting where he is saying, those certain Jews, perhaps there's some jealousy here. You put them in charge instead of us in charge, and now we're going to bring them down. The malicious accusation of the certain Jews, and it includes the word Jews there. It points out the fact they're different from us. They're not like us. These are certain Jews whom you have put in charge of these things. And it goes on to make an overstatement here where it says, King, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image you have set up. Now, it is true that they didn't worship the image. They did not bow down. They did not worship the gods. But it is not true that they paid no attention to him. They showed up for the event. They dressed, as we'll find out later, in the, the garb that was appropriate for the event. They put on their Sunday best, if you will. They put on their work attire. They came and they worked for the human flourishing of those around them until there was a point where they could no longer still be obedient without crossing a line that God had set. And at that point, they had their line and they said, we cannot cross this line. We must obey God rather than men. They didn't pay no attention to the king. They just knew that they could only go so far. And they went that far, and then they stopped. The accusation then, certain Jews, malicious, with an overstatement of they pay no attention, was meant to do harm. Here, as they're meant to do harm, you see what happens next in verse 13, where there's a confrontation that occurs. And we should understand that, that anytime we're going to take a stand for the Lord, anytime that we're going to take a stand, there's going to be a, a constant confrontation. There are going to be consequences. And in verse 13, we see the confrontation as it comes when it says, Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage, pay attention to those words. As you read throughout Daniel, in particular the narrative portions, you'll see Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage over and over again. He has an anger problem. He has an issue with his temper, and here it fires up in furious rage. He commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. He brings them before the king, and as they're there, he asks them the question, is it true? Perhaps, and is it, is it true? You hear the question he's wondering, do you really know what we're talking about here? Now think about the scene. The Bible doesn't tell us all of the details that I would like to know. I like to be able to see what's happening. I like to be able to imagine what it would have looked like. Think about the scene perhaps at this moment. At this moment, you have Nebuchadnezzar perhaps sitting back in a high place, a throne, something of that nature. He's got his strong men on one side. He's got all of the satraps, the prefects, the governors are all around. There are dignitaries everywhere. There are all of these instruments who are here. And then before him are three Hebrew men. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He begins to talk to them, and he says, is it true? You see, I think what he's doing here is he's saying to them, I don't think you understand. You see, here's the deal. We, we're not asking you to deny your God. We're only asking you to bow down to this golden image. Is it true that you don't worship our gods? Is it really true that you can't add other gods to your theological beliefs or system? We're not saying get rid of your God. We're just saying add all of these other gods to it so that you can get along with our society. Now, if it's true that you won't add those gods to it, then that means you're making a claim to exclusive truth and to an exclusive God, a one true God, and that's not tolerable because that is exclusive and we can't have that. I think what he's doing is explaining to them. Is it true that you won't simply bow down to this gold statue we've created? What's the big deal here? And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it was a big deal. 
in that setting, in front of the most powerful person in all of the known world at the time, with all of these gathered around, with the smoke billowing from a furnace in a mountainside nearby, they are asked the question, will you bow down? And then an important question comes after that where it says, and if you won't bow down, you're going to the furnace, and who is the God? Oh, now there's a question that shows up repeatedly throughout Scripture. When people ask, who is the God who will rescue you? Who is the God who will deliver you? And here you see this question, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this situation, and they have to respond. We don't know what happened. Using sanctified imagination, in my mind, I like to think about some of the scenarios that could have occurred, perhaps kind of like Family Feud, if you've ever seen that show, when they're looking for the final answer, they huddle up and they get together and they ask questions. Think about what it would have been like in modern times if we were there at that point in time. You huddle up and you say, all right, guys, what are we going to do? Somebody perhaps makes the suggestion, look, mom and dad are thousands of miles away. There's no FaceTime. There's no iPhones. They will never know what's going to happen. We can get away with it. Perhaps somebody would have suggested, hey guys, I was watching TV last night and a commercial came on and it said what happens in Babylon stays in Babylon, so we're all right. <laughs> you know I'm kidding, right? Perhaps they were there and they were saying, guys, I'd rather be a servant in the king's forces than ashes in the king's furnace. Guys, this is Nebuchadnezzar. This is the law of the land. Nobody's going to fault us if we bow down here. Nobody's going to think anything about it if we bow down to this idol. Hey, guys, why don't we bow the knee but not bow the heart? Whatever that means. But doesn't it sound like something we would say in modern society? So what did they do? Did they answer it in ways that we might have answered it today in modern society? Well, we look at our text, and it does tell us exactly how they answered this particular question, and they had not been reading how to win friends and influence people. It says in verse 16 that they answered Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. That's a pretty bold answer to the most powerful person in all of the world, but perhaps at some times in life it's better not to make an excuse. It's better not to give a defense for yourself. Perhaps at some points in time it's better just to let the Lord answer your calls for you. And here they choose that route, and they say, we have no need to answer you in this matter. And then in verse 17 it says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able, key words there, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And then it says, he will deliver us from your hand, O king. Whether he delivers us from you now or whether we die and we go to be with him in eternity, we will be delivered from your hand. But here's an important theological nuance in verse 18. It says, but if not, if he doesn't deliver us from this furnace, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is an important theological nuance because we wonder sometimes, God, why didn't you save me from the fiery furnace? God, why didn't you save me from those lions in the lion's den? God never promises he will save us in every particular situation. The hallways of history are lined with the portraits of martyrs who gave their lives for the faith, the disciples themselves who followed Christ all died a martyr's death with the exception of John exiled on the island of Patmos. We are not guaranteed that God will save us from trials or from even death. We are guaranteed that God will be with us through those trials. Here there's an important nuance. And so if you're in the midst of the furnace and you're asking the question, why didn't God save me like that? God never promised you that he would save you from it. 
but he will be with you through it. Here we see their response. The charges have been made. The confrontation has occurred. They have responded, and that response has consequences just as when we dare to take a stand, there will be consequences that will arise. And you see those in verse 19 where it says, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Now, the Bible uses few words, but the Bible's already told us he was in furious rage, and now he is filled with fury here. We understand that he has a temper problem, and he yells out, and he says to them, heat that furnace up seven times hotter. What would it have looked like? We don't know. But if he were anything like me or like my father before me, as he were sitting in that chair, as he heard their response, we will not bow down. And he understands this is not confusion. They understand, and they are making an exclusive claim to truth to serve their God and their God only. As he understands this, the text indicates the expression on his face changed. His countenance changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, almost like the turning of the blinds on a window as the expression changes. And perhaps you could see it too, if you're anything like me or my father before me, as the red would grow out of his collar demonstrating the anger that was arising. As the brow began to furrow with deep lines forming in between the eyes to demonstrate displeasure. And on those days where I really blew it and did something bad, there was a vein in the side of the neck that would begin to arise all of a sudden to indicate you're in trouble. On the worst of all occasions, there's another vein that pops out on the temple on the other side and begins to scream with every heartbeat as though it's trying to jump out of the skin. And what it's telling me is you better repent and humble yourself quickly because you're in big trouble, boy. That's what that vein is screaming outside of the head. It, some of you, I think, have seen it. You've seen the expression. You've seen the veins. You've seen the rage. And here he commands, heat the furnace up seven times hotter. Bind them in their cloaks and their tunics and throw them in the furnace. And you can hear the rage in his voice as he has completely blown his temper. Now, this is a side point. It's a minor point. It's, but it still is a point for us in that he blew his temper. He commanded for the furnace to be heated up as hot as it would possibly go, an idiomatic expression there. And all that happens when he heats that furnace up that hot is the strong men that, he, that serve him, they're the ones that die. He hurts those people around him that love him and serve him the most. He doesn't hurt anybody else but himself and those around him. And there's a caution for us there that when we choose to respond to the spouse that we love or to the children that we are shepherding their hearts towards God or to those with whom we work, and we respond with an anger and with a rage so that we lose our logical thought processes and we react rather than responding wisely. When we do that, you see that we hurt those around us. Here, he said, heat it up as hot as it'll go. I think he lost it, and here's why. If I wanted to make an example out of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I could have marched them through the streets. I could have turned it down to a slow boil. I could have put them up for everybody to see them. And instead, he says, heat the thing up seven times hotter, as hot as it will possibly go. So this furnace, probably into the side of a hill, probably looked something like one of those old milk jugs that you would see from Little House on the Prairie that they would leave at the door or something that had a, a top and a skinny neck and it would come out with a wider base at the bottom. 
perhaps like a gourd except squared off at the bottom, something of that nature. They would walk up to the hill. They would drop things off into the top. Down at the bottom, they would be able to put things in. We know from the text that Nebuchadnezzar could see into the bottom. So there was a, a place to put fuel, to put uh, wood, to put something that would burn into the bottom. Perhaps there was a place where they could squeeze air or oxygen in, and that oxygen combined with that wood would heat up the furnace, and then they could melt whatever they wished at the top. Perhaps that's what the furnace looked like to the best of our ability with archaeology and, and history to recreate what the scene would have been. And he says, bind them and take them up to the hill. So they bind them. They have their hands bound, perhaps in front, perhaps in back. In my mind, it's in back. They begin walking up the hill. As they go up the hill, I bet there was some conversation that took place. The text doesn't tell us what they said. It's a walk. If I'm walking up a hill with my three buddies about to go into a fiery furnace, I'm going to say a few things. And, and, and I suspect, at least in my mind, perhaps they said things like, Hey, buddy, it's been good walking through life with you. I'll see you on the other side. They probably had some friends like I do that, that like to crack jokes, even at inappropriate times, and be sarcastic. And one of those buddies probably looked at the rest of them and said, Hey, plan one didn't work out too good. What's plan two? What you got next? But I bet in their hearts, as they walked up that hill, as they got closer and began to feel the heat of the furnace, I bet there was just a little piece of them that asked the question, God, are you out there? God, are you still in control? God, do you know what's happening to us right now? They began to inch closer to that fiery furnace, which they knew would consume them. And I bet they wondered, God, are you in control? The text tells us that the flames killed the strong men that were with them. You can see it in your mind. They heated the furnace up too hot. They added too much of the wood-burning material or whatever under the bottom, too much air. The flames jump up and begin to kiss the sky, grab the strong men, kill the strong men. We've all seen it before. At least if you're like me, you have. You've seen it when you would invite a host of friends over for a meal and you would want to cook out hamburgers. And as you began to cook out hamburgers, you would buy the cheap hamburgers because you had so many people coming over. So instead of the lean beef, the 90-10, you'd go with the 80-20 or something and you never clean your grill. You never have. You never will. And so you throw all of these hamburgers on the top of the grill and all of this grease begins to drip down to the bottom. And as the grease begins to drip down to the bottom and you're talking, you see smoke all of a sudden billowing out the backside of the grill. What's the thing that you do when you see smoke billowing out the backside of your grill? You proceed to open the front, which adds oxygen to the fire that is now a grease fire that is inside of your grill. And when this oxygen rushes in, the flames rush up as they have suddenly been fed. And then what happens next? You begin to look at these little curly things that are on your hands where hairs used to be. You brush them off to the side. You, you notice that they don't smell real good either. You look back at your burgers and you realize that they've now been flame kissed and you put the burgers on the plate because they're done and extra crispy and you begin to walk your burgers into the house and as you open the door and you present a nice plate of burgers, freshly grilled, flame kissed, just like Burger King, right? And they bring it in, they look at you and they say, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> 
And as those former eyelashes fall past your nose, you again catch a whiff of the scent that is not a pleasant aroma that will never be sold at Bath and Body Works, and you hope they don't fall into your burgers as you present them to the rest of the people. You've seen it. I, I can tell some of you have lived it. Perhaps you, like me, are a good country boy. And when you're a country boy, there is never a fire big enough for s'mores. <laughs> Doesn't matter how big the fire is, it needs to be bigger and hotter because you have to get the marshmallow extra crispy on the outside just right, but it has to be gooey on the middle. And so with that fire, you use whatever's nearby. You know, wood, a can of gasoline, your mom's hairspray. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Anything that is flammable, and you throw it into the fire, and then you do those famous last words of any country boy. Hey, y'all, watch this. <laughs> as those flames jump up and begin to kiss the sky as you see them billow, this is the image of what we're talking about as they have heated this furnace up seven times hotter, as hot as it would go, and these flames jump up and kiss the sky. The strong men are engulfed, and as the strong men are engulfed, the text tells us Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall down into the furnace. What happens? Oh, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But don't skim right by. Think about it. They land in the furnace. We know their ropes are burned. They're not bound. Hey, Shadrach, you okay? Yeah, I'm all right. How about you? Good. That same friend. Are we in heaven? I don't know. It looks a whole lot more like the other place to me. Hey guys, who's that? Oh, oh, you mean Nebuchadnezzar? No, 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 no. I don't, I don't mean King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, who's that? Oh, that. That's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's the one who controls the kingdoms of all time. Now, can you imagine how they would have responded? walking around in the midst of the fire with a person that Nebuchadnezzar describes as a son of the gods in the furnace with them? I imagine that even though, at least in my mind, they were Baptists, they probably went a little Baptocostal in that, in that furnace and, and got a little bit excited, maybe even raised their hand, maybe two hands, who knows? I suspect they were a little excited and rejoicing with one another about the fact that God not only knew about their plight, God not only was in control, but that God had taken a fiery furnace, heated up as hot as it could possibly go, and he had made it a painting that was the background portrait to his glory on display for all to see. That's the God we're here to serve. That's the God we're here to worship. If I had been there, I, I would have wanted to ask a few questions. I would have wanted to inquire more about what was happening. My sinful side probably would have come out, and I would have been pointing over to Nebuchadnezzar doing something I probably shouldn't or saying to him, why don't you come on in? It's fine. It feels like a sauna. Or you got any marshmallows I could borrow? Or, you know, something that probably would have ruined the moment just because we all have flesh, right? And so sitting in that furnace here, we see a fourth person. Who is it? We don't know. Nebuchadnezzar in our text describes him as the son of the gods. Later on, he describes him as an angel. We don't know if it was an angel or if it was a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Perhaps it was either. We're not sure, but I guarantee you at that moment, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't care either way. They were rejoicing and praising God who had delivered them. We see here 
that the consequences of this particular situation leads to a conclusion. The conclusion here in verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. Don't miss it. Get the scene. He's sitting back. He's waiting on a puff of smoke for them to go away. And as he's sitting in that chair, he rose up in haste. He looked. I bet he rubbed his eyes. I bet he looked to see if there were really four people unbound. He pointed to the guy on his right. How many people did we throw in that furnace? Three, sir. Mm. How many people did we throw in that furnace? Three, sir. Mm. But I see four. And I see them unbound. And one of them looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door of that furnace. And when Nebuchadnezzar comes near to the door, the text tells us that he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, to come out. This is the same Nebuchadnezzar that previously had said to them, who is the God? Well, he learned who is the God, but he didn't call the God to come out, did he? He just called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. I don't think he wanted to talk to the fourth person in the furnace right about now. As they came out, the text tells us everybody came to examine them. Look at all the people it lists. It says in verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they all gathered together and began to inspect. They had been walking around on hot coals in the midst of a fiery furnace. They look at their feet, there are no blisters. Their shoes are still in perfect condition. They examine their garments, and perhaps there's a dangling thread, and it is not singed in the slightest. They move up, and they look at the hairs on their head, and the hairs are not singed. They look at their arms, and their hairs are not singed. They look at the garments, and they are in perfect condition. These are not walls, fire-retardant garments that they're wearing. They have no fireproof material on, and yet the Lord that is the God of the fires is also the God of the details. He is worried about the hairs on their arms and on their heads. He is worried about the garments that they are wearing. He is demonstrating he doesn't just control the fires. He controls every single detail of the situation because that's the God that we serve. Amen. These people examine them. I don't know how they know they didn't smell of smoke. Perhaps they sniffed their arm. That's weird, I know, but somehow the text tells us they didn't smell like smoke. Now, if you have friends that smoke, you can get into a car with somebody that smokes and get out five minutes later and smell like smoke. You can walk into a, a place of business where people smoke, walk out five minutes later, and you sniff yourself, and you're like, man, that's just reek of smoke. You, you don't even have to be in the fire yourself to walk out and smell like smoke. And here they've been in the hottest fire of the hottest furnace anywhere around. And at that particular point, the text takes the time to tell us that not only was nothing singed, their cloaks were not harmed, but there was no smell of fire had come upon them at all. This is the God. So if you're wondering, God, are you out there? God, are you in control? This text this morning is here to tell us. This text is not about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This text is not about Nebuchadnezzar. This text is about the one true God, the God who is in control, the God who has not forgotten, the God who knows about every detail of life and all of our circumstances so that those exiled from their homeland going through trials and tribulations, God is there with them. And wherever you are this morning, as you are walking up to your fiery furnace and you are feeling the heat of those flames as they are touching you and you're one and you're asking, God, are you out there? God, are you in control? This text screams to us this morning. God is in control. Despite all circumstances, despite all appearances, God is in control. Those medical situations, those things at work, those family details that are happening, 
whatever it is that's causing you to question those sins that you're struggling to overcome, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can. God is in control. Do you believe that this morning? That's who we're here to worship. It tells us, verse 28, that Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had worked for the flourishing of their city and had served well with the talents they had been given up until the point that they could not violate God's law. And here God had used that trial, that tribulation in their life as an opportunity to testify to the glory of God because we suffer not like other people suffer. We suffer with an eye toward how is this going to give glory to God? How is this going to demonstrate my faithfulness to Him? We suffer in a way that points other people to God and they suffered in a way that Nebuchadnezzar responds and says, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So as those challenges, as those fires come your way, as those difficult moments reach into your life. Ask yourself the question, how can I persevere? How can I endure in a way that will give glory to God? How can I use the circumstances of life around me to live a steadfast, faithful life for His honor and for my good? How can we do that in this world? That's what we see in this text. He responds and he says, who has sent His angel and delivered His servants who trusted Him who set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. Now, you can see here he's still struggling with that anger issue, right? He's still got a little violence going on. He still doesn't quite get it. This is not his testimony of salvation. You see in the next chapter, there are still going to be issues with Nebuchadnezzar, but they have been a witness to the most powerful person in all of that land. They have, by their faith, demonstrated God's glory. Here we also note that in Romans 15, 4, we are told that all of these things that happen in the Old Testament that we read about, that we study, have happened so that we might have hope, so that we might persevere, so that we might endure. Why is this in the Bible at all? It's so that we can see it, we can understand it, we can read about it, we can have hope that the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of Daniel, is also the God that we serve and the God that we worship. So here he says to them in verse 30, well, in verse 29, for there is no other God able to rescue in this way. And then in verse 30, he promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You know, if, if you were to go to a prosperity church that preaches prosperity theology, they might have titled the sermon, How to Get a Promotion. It ends with a promotion, but we understand by looking at the text and exactly what it says that we are not guaranteed that God will ever save us from the fiery furnace or from the lions, but we are guaranteed God walks through this life with us. I have two points of application for you out of this text. The first point of application is that we need to stand faithful to God. Stand faithful to God. Wherever you are in your life, you are called to stand faithful to God. Is it a person that is leading you away from God that perhaps you like or care for? Is it a relationship that is going too deep leading you away from God? Is it a situation at work where if you take a stand, it might cost you that promotion or it might cost you your job? Is it that you have to leave a job rather than violate your convictions or your beliefs? What is it that God is calling you to do to stand faithful to God? Here we see in this text, they had an option to bow down to a golden image 
image. If they had bowed down to a golden image, they would have missed the fiery furnace. But they also would have missed the miracle of God's glory on display for all to see. God has called us to be faithful for him, not because he doesn't want our good, but exactly because he wants our good. He wants our flourishing. He wants us to live life to its fullest and to have life more abundantly. And we must stand faithful to God, trusting in him that God knows best. That me and my 40-something years on this earth, I don't know what's best for my life, but God in his eternity, God understands in his omniscience and his omnipresence that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, and he knows what's best for me. And if you believe that, if you truly believe that, you can stand faithful to God despite all circumstances. There's a second point of application here. It's that we stand fearless of man. Our culture wants us to compromise. People want us to abandon our faith because it makes them feel better about the fact they don't have the same faith or may not be of the same virtue or any number of other reasons, and yet we live life knowing that we cannot be fearful of men. The New Testament tells us, if I seek to please men, I cannot please Christ. And we understand that we must stand fearless of men. What can they do to us other than kill us and send us home with our Savior? It's usually not in the big situations that are the hardest. It's the day-to-day situations that are the most difficult to stand fearless of men and to stand faithful to God. And here we see and we note and we know this, but be reaffirmed and reassured that we serve the same God that called Noah to build an ark in a place where it hadn't rained. And he proved him as faithful. God called Moses to deliver the children of Israel and they go up against the Red Sea and he parts the Red Sea to move it out of the way so that they can go through on dry ground. All throughout the Old Testament, God demonstrates that he is faithful. God shows to Naomi, to somebody who had lost her husband and her children, that he is faithful through Ruth and the kinsman redeemer. God uses Jonah, a person who flees from him, swallowed by a great fish to preach so that others would repent and he would affect the flourishing of a whole area. God sent Jesus so that he would die on the cross far my sins in my place to go to the grave three days later to get up out of the grave to ascend to the right hand of the Father and is one day coming back again. God has used all of this to give us assurance that he is faithful. So no matter what comes, so no matter what the fiery furnace looks like, we must stand and say with Job, though he slay me, I will trust in him. We must stand and say with the apostle Paul, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because I have an eternal perspective that this earth is not my home, but I am a pilgrim passing through this world. And I am on my way to a greater destination with a God who infinitely loves me and wants my good. And I trust him. And I trust whatever circumstances he brings my way to be faithful to him through those. So where are you today? You're not struggling with bowing down to a golden statue that's 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide. But perhaps there's some other idol in your life, some other materialism, some other reputation, some other issue that you look around, some, some temptation, sexuality, lust, pornography, something in your life, self-sufficiency that you're looking at and you're saying, boy, that's a tempting idol to bow down to. Perhaps you're here today and you have walked up to the edge of your fiery furnace and you filled the flames and you are wondering, God, are you out there? And perhaps God has this text for you. You're not here by coincidence. You're here by intention to say to you, despite all circumstances, God is in control. 
Perhaps you're here today and you just need to make sure you know where your line is and that you will be faithful to God and fearless of man. Perhaps you need to confess sin and get something right with God. Perhaps you need to take a stand that you have been unwilling to take. However God is speaking to you today, I encourage you just to do business with God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you have given us your revelation of yourself so that we may know, so that we may have faith, so that we may have hope, so that we may have endurance to persevere through trials that you send our way. God, we thank you that you are a God that loves and cares and that is in control and that knows the details of life. God, we thank you that you're with us even when you don't rescue us from them. So God, we pray today that you would help us in each and every day, in each and every circumstance to stand faithful to you and to stand fearless of men. God, we pray that in our unbelief, you would help us to believe. And God, we pray we would live lives that would glorify you, that would work for the flourishing of those around us, and that would be a testimony to Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.